I guess the first thing, no pressure, right? But um, the first thing I wanted to mention, though, is Matthew's, uh, he's not walking out, I'm glad. But I just wanted to thank Matthew, too, because I think there really should be some sort of a healthy pressure. And I think Matthew has done a good job of week in and week out. And I mean, I hear from you guys all the time, too, and I want Matthew to hear, too, of faithfully preaching the gospel to us week in and week out. And I think that's something that for us um, as listeners, as people part of the church family, that's something that really raises the bar for us as well as listeners, as those who hear the word week in and week out. And just like we've been talking about in James these last couple of weeks, these last, uh, these last four or five weeks, and specifically the last three weeks, the importance of how we hear. And, you know, Matthew has done a very good job of raising the bar in what he's preaching and preaching the gospel faithfully to us week in and week out. And, of course, we have so many resources at hand to hear and listen. That's what James is talking about here, and that's what we're going to kind of dovetail off of here in James. So um, so that's what James has been saying. That's what we talked about three weeks ago. Matthew, he's, he's, he talked about the importance of how we hear, being quick to hear, slow to speak and quick to hear. And then two weeks ago, Rick Gamash, he came in and he talked about the importance, the importance of gathering together on Sunday morning to hear the gospel preached, to hear the gospel, gospel proclaimed. And then last week, Matthew preached about not just being hearers of the word, but being doers and walking it out and how we practically walk out the word of God, how we practically walk out the gospel and not just hearing it week in and week out, but actually what we do with it when we hear when we hear the word of God, like we get to faithfully hear from Matthew week in and week out. So that's what James, that's what he does. He's kind of piggybacking off of that. And James chapter 2 starts with some very practical advice. It starts very practical, and he says, hey, here's all these things that I taught you and I've been warning you about hearing and not just being hearers, but be doers. And he says, this is how practically you're to walk it out. And then he starts with James 2. And we're going to hit the first first section of that, 1 through 13. So if you could um, open your Bible. I think we're going to have it on the screen as well, too. We'll read James chapter 2, starting in verse 1. This is what James says. He says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold out the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing, shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, You sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, You stand over there, or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers. That's what we get to do this morning. Listen, has not God chose those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he's promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? If you really fulfill, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. But if you show partiality, 
you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And before we pray, um, the first time I read this, read through this, just wanted to point this out, one, one real quick observation. The first time I read this is probably about five weeks ago, not the first time in my life, of course, but about five weeks ago, as, I, as, I, as Matthew told me, and thank God it wasn't the next about faith without works is dead. Saving that for Matthew next week. But um, I was reading through this, and my, the very first thing that caught, caught my eye was, you know, there was some messed up stuff happening in the church. Like that James would actually have to point out that this type of, this type of stuff is happening. You know, James is writing to Christians. So this is what was actually happening at the church at this time. There's favoritism, there's factionalism, there's partiality, there's this social maneuvering, there's this, what, how can I treat somebody else to get something in return? So a lot of times when we're on the other end of that, when we're the ones who've been treated with partiality or we've been judged the wrong way or ignored, the first thing we want to do a lot of times, the first thing I want to do is I get offended with the church, with the people in the church, and I want to take off. I want to run away. Talk to a lot of people. They say, oh, yeah, I'm not in church. There's just, you know, there are a bunch of hypocrites. I, I, don't, I don't want to have anything to do with church. They're just a bunch of messed up people. And that's what our temptation is to do a lot of times, isn't it? We, we, we see this type of stuff in our churches and we're like, man, I just want to go to a different church where this stuff doesn't exist. Well, the truth is, <laughs> there's not much difference, right? We're a church with messed up people. And those issues and temptations, they existed then. They exist now, even in our church. And I'm not saying it's an excuse for it. But that's why we're gathered here this morning, right? That's why we're gathered here this morning, to listen carefully and obey what the Holy Spirit would teach us, to cry out to God and say, God, help us as a church family. Help us when we're in our care groups. Help us as families to walk this out so we become less and less of a church like James is like James is writing to. So let's pray. Let's ask God. Let's ask the Holy Spirit to help us listen. So Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, we ask you to come. Holy Spirit, would you please come and cut through the clutter? Just cut through all the all this stuff that we get confused with. Holy Spirit, would you come and sharpen our minds? and our ears to listen, to listen to you. God, would you come and enlarge our heart for your glory, for your gospel, so that we'd walk out proclaiming your kingdom. God, please help us now. Help our ears, help our hearts. Open our hearts to the truth of what you want to speak to us this morning. God, that's something I cannot do. We need your Holy Spirit here this morning. So come help us by your word. 
by your spirit, God. Come. In Jesus' name, help us. Amen. Amen. So the first thing that James, if we look at verse 1 here, the first thing James starts out with is really brilliant. Obviously, that's an understatement. It's inspired by the Holy Spirit. But this is what he says, James verse 1. He says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold out the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. So he starts with pointing out, saying, Jesus Christ is the Lord of glory. And this is the ultimate goal. And this is where James starts with. It's, it's brilliant, of course. He starts with, this is the ultimate goal. And that should be the theme we should continually be running back to. Always be running back to is Jesus Christ the Lord of glory. He is the glorious one. Just like we were singing this morning, he's the only one that's worthy. Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. And this is where James starts. This is where he begins. And I think he begins here by making note of Jesus Christ as the Lord of glory. Because if we know the glory of Christ, if we remember, if the Holy Spirit continually reminds us of his glory, if we esteem him as we should, there's not going to be much partiality. There's not going to be much favoritism. When we cling to Jesus as the Lord of glory, something we continually remind ourselves and savor as the ultimate goal, Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, when we wave that banner high, when we hold up Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, as the lens we see everything else through, there's not going to be much partiality. And that's where James begins. However, on the flip side, when we lose sight of Jesus as the Lord of glory, when we forget why we're gathered here this morning to see and savor Jesus Christ as the glorious one, the ultimate treasure, when we lose sight of that, our proclamation of the kingdom of God is going to deteriorate and it's going to show in the way that we live our lives as well. So the practical walking out of our faith is quickly going to become artificial. It's going to drift towards self-worship. It's going to drift towards showing partiality, treating people in a selfish way. What can you do for me? What can I get out of you? We're going to start inventing our own little rule system of doing things. And that's what James, that's exactly what James is warning us here. That's how he begins. So verse 2 and 3, this is what he says. He says, For if a man wearing a gold ring, and he gives this example, he says, For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in. So two guys walk in the assembly, and, Paul, and James, he's, he's primarily writing to Jewish believers. So it's probably even their synagogues. It's the place that they worship. So Two guys walk in to the assembly, this church setting. There's all Christians there. Two guys walk in. One guy has a nice ring, fine clothing. The other guy is kind of wearing shabby clothes. And back in that day, the uh, social status, you could, you could really tell the social status more by what somebody was wearing. It says, so these two guys walk in. And it says, if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine and clothing and say, you sit here in a good place. While you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges 
with evil thoughts. And that's what James is pointing out. He's, the, the people here, they're showing partiality and favoritism based solely on appearances, based solely on what people were wearing. And back in that culture, what that would have looked like is the seats of honor were always reserved for the important people. So somebody coming in wearing you know, nice clothes, a fine jewelry, a person of influence, they would have been given the seat of honor up at front. Then, somebody walking in with the less than nice clothing, the shabby clothes, walks in. You can kind of tell, okay, their economic status is maybe a little, little, little lower. These people in the church, what they would do is they'd say, you know what, there's not even room for you. Or even worse, back in that culture, they would be made to sit on the floor. And if you were made to sit on the floor, back in that culture, that was the place reserved usually for the children or the slaves or the servants, the lowest of the low. And James is saying, watch out, this is what's happening. So it's not hard to see the types of distinctions that were, main, be, that were being made. And James points this out and he says, look at what you're doing. He's warning them and he's saying, look at what you're doing. You're becoming judges based on what people are wearing, based on their appearance. You're becoming judges and treating them in the wrong manner. And that's evil. He actually calls it. He says, you're becoming judges with evil thoughts. He calls that evil. So instead of finding ways to display and hold out the glories of Jesus, he's saying, you have evil thoughts about someone because of the way they look, because of their appearance. D.A. Carson, in a quote about this, and he does a, he does a good job with this, explaining this, but he says this, D.A. Carson, he says, this kind of judgmentalism is prompted by pride. The irony is that this disgusting arrogance is being leveled against those who have been entrusted with the gospel of the crucified Messiah, the good news by which these judgmental people are actually being saved. And he says, how can any thoughtful person be arrogant beside the cross? Isn't that good? He says, how can any thoughtful person be arrogant beside the cross? Isn't this the same warning that, that God gives hundreds of years later to, to Samuel? It's the same warning God whispers to Samuel when God was choosing a king for himself. So rewind back to the Old Testament. First Samuel, the Israelites are there. And um, they don't have a king, and they're whining and complaining. They're looking, they're comparing themselves, themselves to all the other nations, and they say, we want a king, God, we want a king. They go to Samuel and say, Samuel, give us a king, give us a king. Samuel says, actually, you know what, you don't really want a king. He prays and, and, and says, you know what, you don't want a king. The king's just going to make you go to war. He's going to take your sons. He's going to tax you. You don't want a king. They say, no, actually, we really do want a king. Samuel prays, and God says, okay. I'm going to give them what they're asking for. And he anoints Saul. Saul sins against God, and um, God disposes him of king. God takes his anointing away from him as king. Samuel, the prophet there, he's in charge of, of anointing the next king. He's weeping. He's mourning for Israel. And God says, Samuel, get up. Quit, quit weeping. I'm going to choose for myself 
a king. Go to the house of Jesse, and I'm going to pick for myself a king. So Samuel gets up. He goes to he goes to Bethlehem, actually. He goes to the house of Jesse, and he says, Jesse, I'm going to anoint a king. Have all your boys line up and walk in front of me. Of course, there's little David. He's not even invited to the party, not even invited to the show. All the boys, you know, they walk in front. The first son, the, the, the oldest, the strong, strongest, Eliab, he walks in front. And Samuel, he, he sees him, and he's thinking, oh, this has got to be the guy. He's the oldest. He's the strongest. This is the man. But what's God's response? How does God see this? God says this to Samuel. He whispers this to Samuel, and he says, do not look on his appearance or the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And this is what James is warning about. He says these distinctions and outward acts of partiality based on how we see things and how we view things and how we judge things He says, it's evil. It's wrong. He says, watch out. Watch out for these things. So for us, I just want to throw a couple things at you here to begin with to kind of be rolling around the back of your mind um, as, as we're going through this. So what if somebody walks into our church, into our care group? Maybe they make us feel a little bit uncomfortable. Maybe they're a little rough around the edges. Um, maybe they're a generation older than us or a generation younger than us. Maybe they don't have the Providence average of 3.5 kids and have a minivan and they don't homeschool. I, I don't know. I mean, what, what happens? Or maybe they're not in their late 20s and have a baby on the way or something like that. But <laughs> isn't, that, isn't that kind of the average, right? But what thoughts come to your mind? What thoughts would come to your mind? Somebody like that walks in to our gathering or to our care care group. What thoughts? What thoughts would come to your mind? Talk a little bit more about that in application. So verse 5, James goes on to to say, and he he says this, he says, Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith? and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him. So what James says, he says, listen, my beloved brothers. And I love how he words this here. I mean, you can almost just feel the pastoral concern that James has for these people. He doesn't say, listen, you idiots. You don't know what you're doing. Come on, get with it. He says, no, he says, listen, my beloved brothers, listen. Listen. And that same word for listen, if translated from the Greek back to the Hebrew, and it's, it's all over Proverbs, which Matthew, he's told us many times, James is kind of like the New Testament Proverbs, very practical wisdom. The same word translated back to Proverbs, that word listen, where it's all over Proverbs saying listen, listen, would really mean to listen well. It's translated to listen well or to listen attentively or to listen and be attentive. And that's what James is saying here. He's saying, listen, my brothers, listen. 
and be attentive. Listen well, my brothers. Watch what you're doing. Remember what the kingdom of God is about. Remember this glorious gospel. Remember the Lord Jesus, the Lord of glory. Remember what this kingdom of God is about that we're proclaiming. Listen, brothers. Pay attention to what I'm saying. Remember what this kingdom of God is about. It's about this upside-down kingdom that's contrary to everything our culture boasts and chases after. And isn't that right? I mean, isn't that true? What is our culture value? What does our culture chase after? Isn't it all about who you're seen with? Isn't it all about what people can do for you? How somebody will affect your image? I mean, it's everywhere, isn't it? You go to work. I feel it when I go to work. And I work in a Christian organization. I feel it. Our teens, when you go to school, it's there, isn't it? All the little cliques, all the little groups, all the little, man, I'm not going to be seen with that person. But it's everywhere. The lust and craving for power and prestige and recognition, it's all around us constantly. That's what our culture chase after. How can this person, how can I use this person to serve me? And if they're not going to serve me, I don't want to have anything to do with them. I'm going to ignore them or I'll just put on the friendly smiles, you know, smile and nod and go about my day and everything's great, right? I mean, that's our culture. That's what it's all about. It's like this toxic, invisible gas that's everywhere. That It's so subtle, but it's everywhere. And that's what James is warning us. James is warning us. He's saying, hey, Hold the kingdom of God up to you like this mask. Filter everything through the gospel. And that's what we do. We listen attentively and we remind ourselves. What is the kingdom of God place value on? What's God really concerned with? How does God see people and determine worth? Back in in Matthew 9, um, Jesus, he just gets done calling... Uh, Matthew, the tax collector, and um, and he's so he's he's at dinner with the uh, tax collectors and, and sinners. The Pharisees find out about it. They go to Jesus's disciples and and basically they say to uh, his disciples, they say, "Why is your teacher this great guy Jesus? You know, you were talking about why is your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners?" Of course, Jesus hears it. He knows their hearts, and he says, "Hey." I came to call not the righteous, but the sinners. Just the other day, we're um, reading the Jesus Storybook Bible and um, with, with our family, and it was the story of Zacchaeus. And um, we're, so we're reading the story of Zacchaeus, and our daughters they love love that book. And and um, we're reading the story of Zacchaeus, and and um, we got to the end of the story, and. And Sally Lloyd-Jones does a really good job of bringing out kind of the context of what's going on there. And, and when Jesus went to Zacchaeus' house, she really picked that out. And it's the Pharisees and people saying, why would Jesus want to go to a tax collector's house? What is going on with this? And that's what Jesus says. I've come to call those not who are righteous, but the sinners. It's the same for us, right? Paul echoes this in 1 Corinthians 
1 Corinthians 1, 26. He says this about us. He says this to us. He says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So that's what James is reminding us here. He's saying, remember what the kingdom is of God is about. Listen, brothers. Remember what we're proclaiming. Remember Jesus Christ as the glorious one. And now moving on, the, the irony of this is, in verse 6 and 7, we'll read this, the irony is, it's these rich and influential people who these early Christians are actually trying to play up to and play into their hands. It's these people, these rich and influential people, who actually have the power to oppress and exercise their authority over these early Christians. These are the people who actually have the means and resources to make these people submit to their control. So this is what this is what James says here. He says, But you have dishonored the poor man, in verse six. He says, Are not the rich ones the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? So what James is doing is he's trying to dissuade the people from showing favoritism and partiality to the rich and the influential by saying, you know what? The outcome isn't worth it anyway. From a worldly point of view, all your effort, it's doing nothing at all. It's not worth it. These are the same men who you're trying to who you're trying to get in good with, who you're showing favoritism to, these are the same men who end up blaspheming Christ and throwing you in prison. So he's like, why are you doing this anyway? The outcome's not worth it. Now, I don't want you to hear what I'm not saying or what James isn't saying here about befriending the rich and influential because I don't think James is sitting back and saying, you know what, you're not allowed to be friends with anybody with influence to anyone who looks like they have it all together. Don't be friends with them. I don't think he's saying that because even even earlier in his letter, he has an exhortation to the rich as well, too. What I think James is saying here, though, is, you know what? What happens when two people walk in? What are you trying to accomplish when when you befriend someone who may look like they have status or wealth, when somebody comes in who looks like they have it all together, what are you trying to accomplish? And how do you regard the wealthy and influential in relation to the mediocre or the poor or those who are down and out? In other words, if somebody were to walk in here and they look like they have it all together, would we treat them any different than we treat them, somebody at Forest Avenue, when we go to minister at Forest Avenue? And I think that's what James is getting at. Hopefully not, right? But the people James is writing to were favoring the rich and the influential at the expense of the poor. And James is saying, you know what? That's not what the kingdom of God is about. And not only that, but it's not worth it anyway. It's not getting you anywhere anyway. And that's what he warns us with. That's what he's warning them with. So now moving on, James, he, he kind of changes gears a little bit here. 
In verse 8, James changes gears, and actually the whole next session, sec, section 8 through 13, he, he changes gears a little bit, and he really changes, turns the tables. And James raises the bar and he challenges the people, instead of looking at others, instead of saying, hey, this is what you're doing externally, he says, hey, look at yourself. Look at who you are in light of Christ. So verse 8, he says, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. And again, I want to remind you all who James is speaking to. He's speaking to primarily, again, Jewish Christians. Primarily Jewish Christians. And they're going to know exactly what James is talking about in regards to the law and keeping the law. And you've got to remember, too, a lot of these Jewish Christians that Jesus is talking to, Mackinder and James, they're just first-generation, second-generation believers they're probably still keeping a lot of their old Jewish rituals and customs. So they're going to know exactly what James is talking about here, and it's really going to resonate with them. These statements about the law would have really powerfully resonated with these early Jewish Christians. So James, basically, he makes two if statements here. His first if statement, if statement number one, he says, if you're keeping the royal law, that's good. If you're keeping the royal law, love your neighbor as yourself, that's good. You're doing well. If statement number two, he says, but if you show partiality and favoritism, you break the law and you are a transgressor of the law. That would have been pretty huge for them to hear. So basically what James is saying, he's saying, if on one hand... You fulfill the royal law. That's great. That's good. Good for you. I'm glad. That's, that's good stuff. But if, on the other hand, you show partiality, you are practicing sin, and you're a transgressor of the law, which means you now are a lawbreaker. You're a transgressor of the law, and you're a lawbreaker. It's not just enough to pick and choose parts of the law that you're going to obey you mess with one part of the law, you're a lawbreaker. You've transgressed that law, and you are a lawbreaker. One commentary that kind of helped me see how maybe these early Christian, Christian Jews would have seen it um, explains it like this. He says, The law is like a musical harmony which is spoiled if there is one discordant note. Or a golden chain whose completeness is broken if you break just one link. And he says, in the same way, God requires perfect, not partial obedience. We are not to choose out, choose out parts of the law to keep, which suit our own whim, while we neglect the others. So we're not to pick and choose these parts that we're going to obey while we, while we neglect the others. For instance, it would just be like us saying, you know what? I'm going to come to church on Sunday morning, but, you know, that's good. But on the other hand, I'm just not going to talk to that person over there. Or I'm going to worship when the music plays, 
But when that older couple comes in or that person who makes me feel kind of awkward or they look a little off or weird, you know what? I'm walking the other way. Or I'll go to care group. That's good, but I'm going to stay away from that person. That's what James is getting getting after here. And James points out to his real-life example that he uses there in, with adultery and murder. And he says, hey, he says, he says, for he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, he says, if you don't commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So you can kind of see here what James is doing. He's setting us up to show us our, inadequ- our inadequacies and our insufficiencies apart from Christ. When we try to do things on our own strength, when we try to obey all the rules and try to do everything right, James says, you know what? You might as well not even, it's not going to work. Yeah, you can do one part good. That's great. But you try to obey the whole thing, you're a lawbreaker. That's not going to cut it. He shows us that we're transgressors of the law and lawbreakers, and we deserve judgment. Because we deserve judgment, because we are transgressors of the law, because we can't keep the law fully, like James obviously points out here, this law that James is talking about demands justice, and we are the transgressors of that law, and we have nothing to show for ourselves. We are the ones, take a step back, we are the ones who should be treated with partiality. That's us. And then James ties it all together. In verse 12, he says this, So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy, and mercy triumphs over judgment. So James points us to the law of liberty. James points us to the gospel. James turns the table on, tables on us and he says, look at how God judges you. Apart from Christ, did you have any merit or righteousness? No. Apart from Christ, what did you have to offer? Nothing. Apart from Christ, what worth do you have on your own? Again, absolutely nothing. So in the eyes of God, the one whose final judgment really matters, apart from Christ, what's our standing? We're rebels chasing after worthless idols, and because of our sin, we deserve punishment. We're the ones who deserve to be treated with partiality. I mean, really... What James is saying, and and we can relate this to ourselves, if you want to talk about poor and impoverished and utterly worthless, that's every one of us apart from what Christ has done and his sacrificial blood for us on the cross. That's every single one of us. So we are the ones. James turns the tables. We are the ones who should be treated with partiality. And the good news is that's where Christ breaks in. 
That's where Christ breaks in and he liberates us. That's this law of liberty that James is referring to. Christ breaks in with this law of liberty liberty, and he liberates us. God displays his glory at the cross. And in his joy, in his joy, he pardons us. And not only does God just pardon us, but he lavishly blesses us. He lavishly blesses us, the ones who should be condemned as his enemies, the ones who should be treated with partiality. Us, the lawbreakers. He lavishly blesses us because of what his son Jesus did on the cross. So now, as the ones who were poor and condemned, as those who brought absolutely nothing to God's presence and have nothing to offer in God's presence, because of God's mercy and grace, we're pardoned and we're welcomed into His presence because of what Jesus did on the cross. And that's what James is saying here. He's saying, hey, this is what you're to proclaim. That's what you're to proclaim. This is the glory of the law of liberty. And this is what you're called to walk out. So speak and so act as those who are being judged under the law of liberty. Those who should be treated partially. That's us. When we look at how Christ treats us, how could we treat anyone else with partiality? Just like D.A. Carson says, how can any thoughtful person be arrogant besides the cross? We look at the cross, we see how God treats us. How can anyone show partiality? So application, what does that have to do with us here? What does that have to do with our church? What does that have to do with our care groups? What does that have to do with our families? How do we live as a church and individuals who are judged under the law of liberty? How do we speak and act in a way that displays the glory of the gospel that we sing about here, that we just sang about here this morning? How do we act and speak and walk that out practically? That's what James is getting at. How do we speak and act as a people who are redeemed and rescued by Jesus' blood on the cross? How do we act and speak as ones who proclaim and wave the banner high of Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory? This is what he's done for me. This is how he's treated me when I deserve judgment. What does it look like to hold out our faith and display Jesus Christ as the Lord of glory? Um, About seven or eight years ago, um, there was, I was was at at, at the church I was at at the time, um, the church my my parents went to at the time as well, and um, there was a family friend of of, um, our family, (laughs) My, um, my parents and I, brothers and sisters, and um, he's a missionary in India. His name is James. He has a wife named Monica. They have an adopted son. And um, James was speaking at our church, and he, um, he was speaking there. And, you know, when he came in, everyone's like, oh, it's the missionary James, you know, and I think we even supported him. But he was there, and um, he was sharing on a Sunday morning just all the kind of neat things that he's doing over in India and his ministry and what God's using using him for. And um, basically what, they, what they're doing in India is they have a, um, a bakery, but this bakery is kind of a front for the ministry, for, to sharing the gospel. So what they do 
is um, they use a lot of that money and they just funnel it in towards orphanages that they're building for um, basically young Indian girls. And so what they do is they rescue these young Indian girls who are in the untouchable caste, the lowest caste system in India, who are really quite literally in that culture and that society worthless, according to that culture, to that society. They're, they're literally worthless. The, a lot of times if you have a young Indian girl, you're either aborted or you are thrown out on the streets or you're just you're just there to fend for yourself if you're part of the family. You're not really cared for or anything. So that's what James and his wife, Monica, that's what they do. They have this bakery, and they, they kind of they use that as their front, basically, for this, these orphanages. So they preach the gospel. They teach them. They raise them. They give them food, all that good stuff. So as James is sharing that Sunday morning, this is probably about eight years ago, he's sharing that Sunday morning. Um, obviously, he's an old family friend of ours, and um I started to wonder, I was like, man, I wonder if anybody else in our church, in this church I was at at the time, knows James's background. I don't even know if Noel did at the time, or maybe I whispered to you when he's, when he's, uh, when he's sharing. But James's background was about uh, 10, 12 years prior to that, when he was sharing, he was living a lifestyle of sin, entrenched in sin. He was living a homosexual lifestyle drugs, the whole deal, is really, really entrenched in this homosexual lifestyle with drugs and just really a mess. So anyway, he he was invited to the church we were at at the time. I was probably about 11 or 12. He was invited to church, kind of ended up at um, at the home group that my parents were in, that my parents were leading at the time as well. And um, I just remember James when he first started coming, and honestly... He was a mess. He really was a mess. He was, I, I, I'm just, I'm just being honest. He was kind of flaky guy, you know, just coming out of this lifestyle. But the gospel was, was um, preached to him. He understood it. And what ended up happening was he left that lifestyle, completely turned 180 degrees, left everything, left his partner, left the house, left anything that had to do with this old sinful lifestyle, left it all. And basically kind of started a whole new life for himself following Christ. So um, during that year, during that first year when James started to follow Christ, um, we had him over to our house a lot. And I remember, again, you know, he'd come over and um, talk to my parents a lot about stuff. And, and um, you could just kind of, you know, I was only 11, 10 or 11 at the time, so I didn't really know, understand that lifestyle or any of that. But I just kind of know, like, James is kind of a weird guy, you know. Like there's something something going on with James. And he did, he just had problems, you know, living that lifestyle for so long. There's just, there's a lot of, lot of, um, lots of, lots of sin, lots of stuff that he had to work through. So um, I remember after a year, though, after a year of knowing James, after a year of him following Christ, my mom said, you know what? It was on a Sunday morning, and um, I think she's baking a cake or something. And, oh, what's going on? She said, we're going to celebrate James James's birthday. Um, after church, and I was like, "Oh, I didn't know it was James's birthday." We had him over all the time, so you know, I we knew him. He's kind of like an uncle by that time, like Uncle James. But um, so my mom was like, "Oh, you know, we're going to celebrate his birthday," and she had balloons and and the whole deal. And um, I was like, "Oh, I didn't know it was James's birthday." And she said, "Well, it's not really James's physical birthday when he's born, but it's been a year 
since James has chosen to leave the sinful lifestyle, turn around and follow Christ. It's been a year. And um, I was like, okay, that's cool. You know, I get cake. That's really all I, was, <laughs> all I was concerned with probably at the time. But um, but I'll never forget that Sunday after church. It was kind of supposed to be a surprise. Um, there was some people from our, our home group, care group there. And um, I remember James. We're all there. And he walked in the door. And this is just a year after. And um, he walked in and all kind of some surprise and he's like what's going on you know it's not my birthday or whatever and I just remember my mom and dad saying James we love you and it's been so neat to see God's faithfulness in your life and how you've responded to his love and how you've left everything and we just want to celebrate that with you it's been a year and I'll never forget James's response what he did was he just broke down he literally he literally fell to his knees and he just started weeping he just started weeping. I'll never forget that. He just started weeping. And when he got up, I remember he cried a lot anyway, but when he got up, he uh, when he got up, it was about after a minute, he's just weeping there. He got up and he said, he said, thank you. He said, this last year has been really hard. And he said, but if it wasn't for your family, if it wasn't for this home group, he said, I don't know. I don't know if it wasn't for the love and encouragement that I've seen through Christ. It's like, I don't know what I would have done. I might be back in that lifestyle. It's been hard. And now here's James still today. To this day, I just was on his website the other day. He's still a missionary. He got married. They adopted a, adopted a son. He's doing mission, missions in India, proclaiming the good news of redemption. But this morning, that's what I want to, as a church, I want us to ask ourselves the same question. What if someone walks into our church who makes us feel a little bit uncomfortable? Let me tell you, James was a mess. Maybe they're a little rough around the edges. Maybe they're not that well kept. Maybe they don't have the Johnson County look to them. Maybe they smell like they've been in a bar. Maybe, who knows, they're living a lifestyle of sin. They're just entrenched in it, but they get invited somehow. How would we respond as a church, as a care group, as families? Because I think the temptation, I know at least for me, I think the temptation or the impulse would be to show partiality. I think what I'd probably want to do is just ignore that person, maybe greet them, <laughs> like like Matthew said. I would go up and greet them and smile and nod and then be like, "Well, we're never having this person over again." You know, I that might be the that might be the temptation in our hearts to do that, right? To just look the other way the next time they come in, they walk into our care groups. To just look the other way, to ignore them. So when this temptation creeps in to our minds and hearts, what do we do? We go back to James 2. We remember, we remember how Christ treated us when we had nothing to offer. We remember that we are ones who are going to be judged under the law of liberty. What the gospel has done for us, we remember how Christ treated us when our hearts were far away and in rebellion. 
We remember how Christ treated us when we were spiritually blind and crippled and disabled. We remember how Christ treated us when there was nothing attractive or nothing worthy about us. We remember how Christ pursued us and made a way to us through himself. We remember that God takes all of our sin, all of our ugliness, all of that trash, all of that worthlessness. We remember how he put it on his own son, Jesus. So when we, we are the ones, when we were the ones who deserved to be banished from his presence, when we were the ones who in God's eyes deserved to be treated with partiality because of the cross, because of what Jesus did on the cross, because of his redemption, God robes us with righteousness and welcomes us with honor. Isn't that how we should be as a church? Isn't that how we should be as care groups? Shouldn't that be our mentality? Isn't that the glory of the gospel, this glorious Jesus Christ that James is saying, hey, this is the banner we wave high, Jesus Christ. The glories of Jesus. That is the glory of Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. That because of the cross, his mercy triumphs over judgment. That judgment was satisfied. The judgment deserved for us was satisfied. The wrath that was deserved for us was satisfied in Christ. And his love, his mercy triumphs. So let's remember that. Let's cry out to God to reveal more of himself as we walk out our faith and the way we act and talk to others. That his glory would be on display when people walk in to our assembly, to our church family, our church gatherings, when people walk into our care groups, when people come over to our houses, our homes, they would see God's glory on display, that they would see people who are messed up sinners who've been redeemed, who should be treated partially, but have been redeemed because of what Jesus did on the cross. So let's pray.